Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode of For Real is sponsored by Librio FM Audiobooks. Librio FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Librio.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Librio FM app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from the people who know audiobooks best, local booksellers. Listeners of For Real can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro FM, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code BR3. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. We're recording on Friday, March 1st. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Oh, I am sleepy but great. How are you? I am extremely tired of snow. Uh... So it is March 1st when we're recording, and I live in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. I feel like I've talked about this on like every podcast so far this year, but February is now officially like the snowiest February the Twin Cities has ever seen. Uh, we had 39 inches of snow in one month, uh, which is 12 and a half more inches than the last snowiest February, which is 1962. And uh, according to a local newspaper, I looked this up because I was so, an- so angry about it. Uh, there has been more snow in the Twin Cities this month than in seven entire snowfall seasons since the year 2002, uh, which is just the worst. It's the worst. It's almost like the climate is changing. Do you get it? Really? The climate is changing. Who <laughs> Yeah, who, who would have thought of that? I, I assumed that since it was snowing, it, it meant that, that global warming wasn't a thing. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, with, with my evening, I guess, rather than being mad at snow because we have none of it here, uh, have been watching a lot of like needle felting videos. Because I suddenly decided, yeah, I suddenly really? decided today, yeah, that I was like, what if I got into like felting animals? And so I've been watching and it's just amazing what people do. And all you have to do is take a very sharp stick and poke it a lot into like a ball of wool. I mean, there's some more steps involved, but it's pretty much poking this wool thing with a sharp thing a lot. And they were like, you will stick yourself with this sharp tool, but it's okay. So I'm excited about that. I cannot wait to see what kind of crazy looking (laughs) animals you make. I cannot wait. I mean, we'll see if I have any follow through. Um, I wanted to do a quick note. Uh, So my amazing friend Glennis contacted me. So I recommended a book during our 
uh, Arctic uh, Tropics episode called Ada Blackjack, A True Story of Survival in the Arctic, which the description of the book uh, describes her as a 25-year-old Eskimo woman. And I said that, and my friend lives in uh, Canada and said that um, she wanted to send me a quick note that Eskimo isn't a great word for Northern peoples, um, and it's often used as a slur against them. So basically, you know, the collective name for Northern peoples is Inuit, which means the people. Eskimo means raw meat eater and was a name given to the Inuit by white colonists. Um, So thank you so much, Glynis. I I think I knew like that Inuit was used, but I didn't know that Eskimo was actually like a pejorative, like bad term. Um, so this was fantastic. Uh, not me using it, but <laughs> the uh, <laughs> correction there. So yeah, going forward, Inuit peoples. That is very good to know. I did not know that at all. So yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, the only other quick note I just wanted to say is that this podcast marks our one-year podcasting anniversary. Our first episode was last year uh, in the beginning of March. So that's kind of an exciting little milestone, I would say. Hooray! Hooray. I just wanted to call that out real quick since we're doing follow-up and, and whatnot. So Yeah. And on that note, let's talk about our sponsor today. Um, So we are sponsored by Hanover Square Press and The Lady from the Black Lagoon by Mallory O'Meara. I am personally, a side note, very excited about this book. It looks awesome. So The Lady from the Black Lagoon uncovers the life and work of Millicent Patrick, one of Disney's first female animators and the only woman to create one of Hollywood's classic movie monsters, the creature from the Black Lagoon. For someone who should have been hailed as a pioneer in the genre, there was little information about Millicent Patrick available. Her contribution had been claimed by a jealous male colleague, her career had been cut short, and she soon after had disappeared from film history. The Lady from the Black Lagoon restores Patrick to her place in film history while calling out a Hollywood culture where little seems to have changed since. So if you are interested, The Lady from the Black Lagoon is perfect for monster lovers, Hollywood history fans, and those interested in feminist nonfiction. I personally fall within two of those camps. The book highlights the discrimination against women in Hollywood, an issue that is still very prevalent today, and it has already received starred reviews from Publishers Weekly and Booklist, as well as positive reviews from Kirkus and Library Journal. Again, that is The Lady from the Black Lagoon by Mallory O'Meara, and thank you for sponsoring. Yeah, I'm super glad they sponsored because that is one that's on my list to look up this month. It looks like it looks so fun and interesting and especially relevant given that the Oscars just happened and we get back into that discussion about women in Hollywood and everything like that. So awesome. Uh, All right. So with that, we're going to jump officially into our first segment, which is always new books. Um, We're doing it a little bit different this week. Um, I'm going to talk about three new books that I'm excited. And then Alice is going to do kind of in between that a few short um, hits for new books because March 5th and like this little period of time is just bananas in the number of new books there are. I think our combined list had something like 20 titles on it. So it's just crazy. Yeah. 20 awesome titles. Yeah. So I don't think we're going to quite get to all of them, but we're going to get to a bunch. Um, So my first new book for this week is called Skeleton Keys, The Secret Life of Bone by Brian Switek. Uh, And this book is a history of bones, uh, which is right in my weird science wheelhouse. Um, Actually, I I opened a galley of this book um, and my sister was with me and I like squealed because I was like, oh, and I held it up and she's like, yeah, that's a Kim book right there. Mm hmm. Uh, Because she she knows what I like to read. 
So um, the book uh, looks at where our skeletons come from, what the purpose of our skeletons are inside us, like what they actually do, and then what other people can learn about us and creatures that have skeletons when bones are all that are left. So uh, it's a book that combines paleontology and anthropology and medicine and forensics, uh, and I love all of those things. Um, and so the early part of the book looks at how bones evolved, so how we actually became people with skeletons or creatures with skeletons, um, and then what the organization of how our skeletons put together says about how we evolved from little microorganisms. Um, there's also chapters on the chemical makeup of bones, um, the function of different bones in the body, uh, and then diseases and research or diseases that bones can have, and then other research we can do uh, with bones to understand. Uh, everything better. Um, and I am really enjoying this one so far. It is really breezy and light and fun. Um, there are lots of jokes and asides, which um, is great for me. Like if you're looking for a more serious book, your mileage may vary on that, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. So um, definitely recommend it, even though I'm not quite finished. Uh, and that is Skeleton Keys, The Secret Life of Bone by Brian Switek. Oh my gosh, explains where our skeletons came from. That's awesome. Um, mm-hmm. Fantastic. I'm going to look that up. It was not on my own list of like upcoming nonfiction. Uh, so, okay. Yes. Quick hits for me. Uh, the first is Devices and Desires, Bess of Hardwick and the Building of Elizabethan England by Kate Hubbard. It's out from Harper. Um, so Bess of Hardwick uh, was living uh, in the 16th century. She rose from these humble beginnings to become one of the most respected and feared countesses in Elizabethan England. She was this entrepreneur who built a family fortune and created these glorious houses, the last one she made when she was a widow. Um, and she was deeply involved in matters at court, including the custody of my nemesis, Mary Queen of Scots. So essentially she cultivated all these influential courtiers, but all these people like hated her too, right? Because if you're really powerful, you have a lot of enemies. Um, She was called a woman of devices and desires by her fourth husband, which is hence the title. And then in 19th century male historians, those bastions of nobility portrayed her as a monster. So this woman of masculine understanding and conduct and all this stuff. So in the 21st century, people were saying, oh, no, she was wonderful because feminine, not feminine, good Lord, female historians wanted to uh, kind of reclaim her and like, you know, take back this like monstrous reputation. So what Kate Hubbard is doing is pretty much... um, trying to hit a middle ground. So again, that is Devices and Desires, Bess of Hardwick and the Building of Elizabethan England. There is also Women Warriors, an Unexpected History by Pamela Toller. She basically goes around the world and tells stories of women warriors, including Buffalo Calf Road Woman, who is this Cheyenne warrior who knocked General Custer off his horse at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Um, General Custer, I'm just going to say it, he sucked. So I'm not totally anti this. Not pro-killing him but pro-knocking him off his horse. Um, <laughs> Ana Azurdi de Padilla was this mestiza warrior who fought in at least 16 major battles against colonizers of Latin America. And then there's also Lakshmi by Rani of Jansi, who was regarded as the bravest and best military leader in the 1857 Indian mutiny against British rule. So again, that one is Women Warriors, an Unexpected History by Pamela D. Toller. Uh, that looks amazing. Excellent. Those are great. Um, My second pick is called uh, The Wrong End of the Table, a mostly comic memoir of a Muslim Arab woman just trying to fit in by Isar Salman. Um, And so this is a kind of collection of essays memoir about what happens when a, quote, shy, awkward Arab girl with a weird name and an unfortunate propensity towards facial hair is uprooted from her comfortable homeland of Iraq and thrust into the cold alien town of Columbus, Ohio. 
Um, and I forgot the part. There's a little parenthesis aside in that quote that says, albeit fascist regimed homeland of Iraq. So um, it's just a, it's a book about uh, so um, Salman and her family uh, came to the United States, came to Columbus, Ohio uh, when she was really young. Um, and the book is all stories about trying to fit in while still fit in, in the United States while still meeting her parents' expectations of what a Muslim girl should do. Um, there's also a part later that I haven't gotten to talking about after 9-11, kind of the isolation and trauma she faced as a Muslim after the 9-11, September 11th attacks. Um, the uh, idea of the title, I think, is really fun. It comes from the idea of um, like being at a party but missing out on all of the good stuff because it's happening at the other end of the table, which is what she – one of the metaphors she used to describe um, being an immigrant is that there's kind of – you're always missing out because something's happening at the other side of the table from you. Um and um, I'm a little bit into this one, and I'm I'm enjoying it. It's very funny. Um, some chapters are, are uncomfortable to read because she is very blunt and um, maybe a little more blunt than, than my preference would be generally. But um, it's still really good anyway. Um, um, the other thing I would say is I'm reading it as an ebook, and I wish that I had a physical copy in my hands because um, she's one of those authors who uses footnotes as jokes, um, and they're hard to read in the ebook. Like I just I don't like that reading experience, so I wish that I had uh, a physical book so I could actually be kind of engaging with the jokes as they're happening in the text because I do like footnote jokes. I think that's really funny. So um, I'm really enjoying this. She's very honest and frank and funny about her family and. Um, the stuff that's happening to her as a kid and what, what it is like kind of being an immigrant kid in Ohio. And then I think Kentucky, they moved to next. I can't remember. I could be wrong about that one. Um, but yeah, it's really fun and interesting. So uh, that is The Wrong End of the Table, a mostly comic memoir of a Muslim Arab woman just trying to fit in by Easter Salman. Fantastic pick. So my next quick hits are Danamora, Two Escaped Killers, Three Weeks of Terror, and The Largest Manhunt Ever in New York State by Charles Gardner out by Random House. Kim, isn't that an awesome subtitle? I was just thinking that. It's while so good. It's so good. <laughs> So in June 2015, two vicious convicted murderers broke out of the Clinton Correctional Facility in Danamora in New York's North County, launching the most extensive manhunt in state history. Aided by prison employee Joyce Mitchell, double murderer Richard Matt, and cop killer David Sweat slipped out of their cells, followed by a network of followed a network of tunnels and pipes what? under the 30-foot prison wall. Yeah, it's an 18-inch pipe. I was reading it and I was like, I don't understand. <sighs> And climbed out of a manhole to freedom. Denimore is a gripping account of the circumstances that led to the bold breakout and the 23-day search that culminated in one man dead and one man back in custody. I don't know which is which yet. And lingering questions about those who set the deadly drama in motion. So that one is like, oh, I mean, you know, it's terrible that like someone died, but it's very gripping as a story. <laughs> Sorry. I was really obsessed with the show Prison Break. Uh, and that is what this reminds me of. And now I want to read that very much. I mean, it's got a really good title, so I say go it for does. it. Um, also is uh, An American Summer, Love and Death in Chicago by Alex Kotlowitz uh, out March 5th. So over the past 20 years in Chicago, 14,033 people have been killed and another roughly 60,000 wounded by gunfire. What does that do to the spirit of individuals and community? Drawing on his decades of experience, Alex Kotlowitz set out to chronicle one summer in the city, writing about individuals who have emerged from the violence and whose stories capture the capacity and the breaking point of the human heart and soul. Um, again, speaking as someone who lives here, our gun violence numbers are insane. And um, 
yeah, my church every Sunday reads the names of people 18 and under who have died as a result of gun violence, and there are almost always mm-hmm. names. My last pick for this section is uh, Real Queer America, LGBT Stories from the Red States by Samantha Allen out from Little Brown. In Real Queer America, Allen takes us on a cross-country road trip stretching all the way from Provo, Utah to the Rio Grande Valley to the Bible Belt to the Deep South. Her motto for the trip, something gay every day. Making pit stops <laughs> at drag shows, political rallies, and the hubs of queer life across the heartland, she introduces us to scores of extraordinary LGBT people working for change from the first openly transgender mayor in Texas history to the manager of the only queer nightclub in Bloomington, Indiana, and many more. Um, this one, I'm like so delighted that uh, Samantha Allen wrote this and like took this on because um, it can be easy to just, you know, kind of forget about the queer people who live in red states and uh i can't imagine how hard that must be so to for her to go in and like find something like joyful and just like you know like identity like affirming in each of these states is awesome Uh, again that is real queer america by samantha allen yeah i'm really glad you mentioned that one that was on my list too i think it looks really amazing um yeah and like you said a really great concept and idea for a book of really trying to find different expose new stories from places that we think that we know or that we like to kind of fly over. I think that sounds awesome. Um, So my third pick for new books this week uh, is called That Good Night, Life and Medicine in the 11th Hour by Sunita Puri. Um, And so uh, Dr. Sunita Puri is the American-born daughter of immigrants. Um, And as a child, she... um, kind of looked at her parents' two experiences that seemed very different. Um, Her mother was an anesthesiologist, so she was in the OR every day. Um, And so she watched her mother as a doctor. And then um, at night, she spent time in conversation with her parents about their faith. Um, And through that experience, she grew up seeing uh, what the the tension was or the... um, yeah, the tension between uh, the need for medicine to want to try and save every life as possible and the idea that like sometimes that isn't the best choice, um, which is a, a book, a theme that I've, I've come up in a lot of books that I find really interesting. Um, and so uh, in this book, uh, so as she as she grew up to be a um, uh, to be in palliative medicine, which is the idea that sometimes um, the conversation we need that doctors need to have with patients is that you are terminally ill and these treatments are not, in fact, a cure for you. They may extend your life, but the quality of life is not going to be what you want. And kind of how we have those conversations about what the best role of medicine is in prolonging, not necessarily prolonging life, but improving quality of life at the the end. Um, and so she writes about her her role in palliative medicine and what she does and how that um, what that is like in her experiences. Um, and a, several of the books that, or the reviews and stuff that I read about this one compared it to both uh, When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Calathalani, Cal- uh, which is an amazing book um, about a surgeon who um, writes about having a terminal cancer and Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, which is another book about um, kind of end-of-life care and uh, what all of that means. Um, and so to have this book several different times mentioned in the same kind of conversation as those two, I think, indicates uh, really excellent because those are two wonderful, wonderful books. Um, so I'm very uh, interested in trying to find a copy of this one to read. And the book is called That Good Night, Life in Medicine in the 11th Hour by Sunita Puri. Look at you getting in your medicine book for the show. 
That seems right. Uh, and in sort of my own personal vein. Um, so my, my next one is America's Jewish Women, A History from Colonial Times to Today by Pamela, I'm going to go with Nadal on the pronunciation of that last name, published by W.W. Norton. Um, I was extremely excited about this because I have not seen a complete history of Jewish women, particularly in America. Um, and I feel like, you know, I, I read about sort of scattered um, significant figures, but to have them all collected in one book is really exciting. So she weaves together the stories of a diverse group of extraordinarily extraordinary people from the colonial era matriarch Grace Nathan and her great granddaughter, poet Emma Lazarus. Emma Lazarus is, of course, the woman who wrote the inscription on the Statue of Liberty, you know, bring to me your, what is it, your poor, your tired, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, something like that, Mm -hmm. Um, to labor organizer Bessie Hillman and the great justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, to scores of other activists, workers, wives, and mothers who helped carve out a Jewish American identity. Did you know there was a a, uh, suffragist named Ernestine Rose who had like, she was tremendously popular and supposed to be this amazing speaker, and she is mostly never talked about in suffrage history in America. Um, I just got a biography of her, so I hope she's in this book. But anyway, that is America's Jewish Women by Pamela Nadel. And then my last new release pick, again, so many amazing books, The like this two-week period. I don't know why. It's spring, yeah. almost. God will. Um, so is <laughs> 10 Drugs, How Plants, Powers, and Pills have shaped the history of medicine by Thomas Hager. It's out from Abrams Press. Beginning with opium, the joy plant, which has been used for 10,000 years, Hager tells a story of medicine. His subjects include the largely forgotten female pioneer who introduced smallpox inoculation to Britain. Oh, I bet that's Lady Mary Wortley Montague. No spoilers. The infamous... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I wrote two papers on her in college. The infamous knockout drops, the first antibiotic, which saved countless lives, the first antipsychotic, which helped empty public mental hospitals. Mm, Don't know how I feel about that. Viagra, statins, and the new frontier of monoclonal antibodies. I don't know what those are, but they sound important. Um, Again, so this is a history of medicine. It sounds cool. Ten drugs, how plants, powers, and pills have shaped the history of medicine. That sounds excellent too, man. There, I there are even books we didn't talk about. I know, like it's just crazy how many books are coming out in the next couple of weeks. It's just ridiculous. I need like time to just like pause for a while so I can catch up. Like that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, all right. Our uh, our main topic for this week's podcast is actually the same theme that we did for our very first full podcast, which is International Women's Day. Uh, and it is what day is International Women's Day? I can't remember. March eighth. March 8th. Thank you. So since this is coming out uh, just ahead of International Women's Day, we thought we would do some books about international women and international women's issues. So um, I feel like we actually have a really interesting range of books in different places. So um, I'm excited to talk a little bit about these. Um, So my first book is called Border, A Journey to the Edge of Europe by Kepka Kasabova. Uh, And this is another book from Gay Wolf Press, my favorite. Uh, And it is a travel book about Bulgaria, um, specifically the border that Bulgaria shares with Turkey and Greece. Um, And the reason that this border is important is that it represented um, another front in the Cold War uh, between Europe and Russia. And um, it was uh, when Kesbova was a child growing up in Bulgaria, um, a lot of people tried to come through there because they thought it would be a better place to cross from the east to the west than the Berlin 
Berlin Wall because it was um, supposedly like less guarded, but actually like it is a very dangerous place, both because there were soldiers and spies there, because there was fencing there, and then because it's super foresty and mountainy and dangerous to try and kind of traverse the wilderness in this area. So um, in order to write the book to kind of get a new sense of the border, uh, she goes to stay in towns along the border to see like who lives there now and what is the history of these places and what are some of the like rumors and myths and stories and and all of those things that are sort of persisting in these communities that are sort of right on the edge of these wild places. Um The book also has a lot about the history of the Cold War, and then she connects kind of the Cold War traveling and um, uh, impermanence of this border with uh, the refugee crisis and how other people are now kind of coming through this border into Europe um, from other places. Um, And I uh, have just, I'm enjoying this book so much. Um, She is really good at telling stories about people. Um, So through her travel, she just meets a ton of different characters and she picks out these perfect weird details about these people and gives you just like such vivid, particular images about them. It's so interesting. Um, And I also have enjoying the way that she gives. So there are a lot of like weird rumors and myths and like kind of odd beliefs about these areas and she gives them weight and seriousness and like tries to interrogate them and like really not just uh, kind of explain what they mean and why they have persisted. And I really have enjoyed that part of it as well. Um, So it's just a really super interesting um, kind of slow moving meandering kind of book, but it's really kind of a fun and an area that I have not really read a lot about. Um, So it's a lot of it's new to me. And so that is Border, A Journey to the Edge of Europe by Kapka Kasabova. Yeah, I am a I'm terrible at geography, but uh especially with kind of like central Europe, isn't that where Bulgaria mm-hmm. is? Yeah. So I don't yeah. I know mm-hmm. zero about Bulgaria. So that sounds fantastic. Uh does you know the historian by Elizabeth Kostova or Kostova or whatever, is that does any of that take place in Bulgaria? Do you know? I haven't I haven't read that book, I don't know. Oh, she does a lot of like travel log ish type stuff and they go all over kind of that area so maybe hmm. but anyway so my uh my first pick is the queen of katwe a story of life chess and one extraordinary girl's dream of becoming a grand master by tim crothers this is the uh inspiring true story of fiona mutezi a teenage chess prodigy from the slums of kampala uganda and yes that is the movie that lupita nyongo is in the queen of katwe yeah mm-hmm. it's a really charming movie oh really i haven't seen it yeah, I really liked it. I mean, it's sort of it's sort of Disney-fied, you know, in lots of ways, but I thought it was really charming and lovely. So anyway. Great. Let's all watch the movie and also read the book. So a Ugandan missionary, uh, meaning he's from Uganda as well, named Robert Katende taught Fiona chess when she was nine as part of this program he had to kind of empower children through the game of chess. So, But then by the age of 11, Fiona was her country's junior champion and at 15, the national champion. So like all of Uganda. In September 2010, she traveled to Siberia to compete in the Chess Olympiad, the world's most prestigious team chess event. Fiona's dream is to one day become a grandmaster, which is, if you've seen Searching for Bobby Fischer, the most elite title in chess. And let me just pause (laughs) to say how much I love the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer. It's so good. Okay. 
So to reach this goal, she must grapple with everyday life in one of the world's most unstable countries, a place where girls are taught to be mothers, not dreamers, and the threat of AIDS, kidnapping, and starvation loom over the people. Again, that is The Queen of Katwe, a story of life, chess, and one extraordinary girl's dream of becoming a grandmaster. Excellent. Excellent. I'm glad you mentioned that one. Um, my second book is one that I I believe I actually talked about on a previous episode of, the po- episode of the podcast in new books and then actually got to read it, which is so good. Um, it is called I Should Have Honor, A Memoir of Hope and Pride in Pakistan by Khalida, Khalida Brohi. Um, and so this is a memoir by a Pakistani activist who uh, was raised in rural Pakistan by in kind of one of those rural villages. And um, she was raised in a culture and a family that believed in arranged marriage. And so she was actually promised to be the bride of someone in a neighboring, I, I think, not a neighboring tribe, but like somebody within their a family within their community before she was even born. Um, and it was kind of this complicated arrangement that I don't remember the details of. Um, but her father, who believed in education even for his daughters, refused to let her be a child bride. And so they actually left her village when she was a child and they moved to a larger city so that she could go to school and get an education. Um, but when she is a little bit older, she learns that her beloved cousin, a girl that she grew up with and who they were very close to, was murdered by her family in uh, by Kalida's uncle in what was an what they call an honor killing, um, and she was murdered for she was killed by her family for falling in love with a man she wasn't wasn't promised to, and then running away with him. And so this um, tragedy um, kind of inspired um, Brohi to try to make a change and become an activist. And so she um, used her education and she used her her access to become an activist fighting for women's rights in rural communities in Pakistan and around the world. Um, She started trying to do education and women's support groups and really trying to get into those villages to empower women, but then also um, developed this really, I think, sophisticated strategy to try and change the minds of men in those communities to the idea that honor killings are not a thing that should be happening anywhere at all, ever. Um, and she is um, really open uh, about her work as an activist and about the um, toll it took on her and her family. Um, she became estranged from her family for a time because they were both scared for her and also like having a hard time supporting the path that she was taking. Um, uh, she's open about the ways in which she failed, the ways in which her kind of zest or um, uh, excitement about her activism didn't didn't translate and didn't work in some of the places she was trying to reach. Um, And I just, I thought it was very open and honest and um, interesting at kind of the formation of a young women's activist. Um, And the book kind of ends as she writes about coming to the United States um, for some training with other young activists um, and how that plus falling in love really changed her perspective on what she was doing, but not her goals to try and end uh, honor killing in Pakistan. So um, it's a really interesting book, uh, a look at a culture that like I'll never really know about, but also um, about what it takes to be a young activist in a place like Pakistan. So uh, I think it's really great. Um, and that book is I Should Have Honor, A Memoir of Hope and Pride in Pakistan by Khalida Brohi. Well, I'm glad you did that. Um, okay, switching gears slightly, my next pick is Sky Train, Tibetan Women on the Edge of History by Canyon Sam. So Canyon Sam, who chose her own name, contemplates a modern history from the perspective of Tibetan women. So she goes on China's new Sky Train, which uh, have you seen like a Sky Train? Like what they look like? No, what is it? Um, I think it's 
Okay, I haven't been to Disney World, but I imagine they have something like it where you've got like tracks above the train car and the, you know, train kind of hangs from those tracks and follows them. Um, it looks terrifying, <laughs> but apparently people like it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, it does. I just Googled it. Wow. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's really safe. Um, so she's going on this new sky train and she celebrates the Tibetan New Year with the Lhasa family, whom she was like she'd been friends with them for like decades, and she was doing this oral history project with women elders. So she uncovers these stories of Tibetan women's courage and resourcefulness and spiritual strength um in the face of this loss and hardship since the Chinese occupation of Tibet in 1950. And she also observes the changes that this um, controversial, so not just like scary looking, but controversial new rail line in the futuristic um, new Lhasa have kind of like created. So her glimpse of Tibet's past is uh, through the lens of the women, which I think is fascinating. I'm really glad that, you know, there is this book that focuses specifically on Tibetan women. And um so she talks to a visionary educator, a freedom fighter, a gulag survivor, um, which, oh my gosh, isn't the gulag is, um, it's Russia, right? So which I guess is like right next door. Mm-hmm. Um, good Lord. Any child bride. So this affords her a unique perspective on the state of Tibetan culture today. Um, this Tibet uh, in, in exile and this widening Tibetan diaspora. So again, that is Skytrain, Tibetan Women on the Edge of History by Canyon Sam. That's interesting. I love that title too. Like that's a really evocative title. You know what I mean? Um, Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. Um, So my final pick is actually an older book, one that I read uh, several years ago. It came out in 2014 and it's called The Lonely War, One Woman's Account of the Struggle for Modern Iran by Nazila Fati. Um, And this is a story about modern Iran, about um, the country and people living in it that are struggling to find their way. Um, So Fatih was nine years old during the Iranian Revolution, uh, which was a 1979 uprising where the Iranian Shah was replaced with a radical Islamic regime. Uh, And so she grew up during a time of radical change as the country was responding to this new Islamic regime and they were making changes and stamping down on people. Um, And so as she when she was young, um, her father, uh, he worked as a, a government minister as a government minister, I think. Um, and he was, uh, when the Islamic regime took over, fired from his job. Um, and he was forced to go work um, out at a farm, I think an orchard. Um, and they fell into poverty like many other people in the country um, because they were not allowed to participate in the government and the government was relatively pretty corrupt. Um, so she... Uh, Fatih decided that as she grew up, she wanted to become a journalist. Um, but um, predictably, she in Iran came up against limits on opportunities for women. And so uh, at some point when she was uh, later, she left. Um, and so the book opens in 2009 uh, when she after she's returned to Iran to report about the popular uprisings in Tehran. Um, and at the time, she was the longest serving Iranian reporter for an American publication serving in the country. I think she was writing... I can't remember if it was Washington Post or New York Times, but she is a journalist who had been, she had come back and lived there for a long time and had been reporting on the regime and everything that was happening. Um, And so the book opens with um, getting a call from a government source of hers that said the regime had given her photo to snipers and she was in danger. 
Um, and so there's this very tense several, you know, there's this very tense thread running through the book of just wondering, like, what is going to happen about that? Uh, and eventually undercover agents arrived at her home and she was forced to flee the country with her family. So um, she had returned to work and then eventually was forced to flee because her work as a journalist was threatening to the regime. Um, and I just this book was so, so good. Um, the writing is excellent. Um, And I was really impressed at the time that I read it, that she was so good at giving very clear, very concise, and very precise explanations of a complicated place in time. Um, The introduction of the book, which explains kind of what the Iranian revolution is and what happened, is the best explanation of that that I think I had ever read. It's so very, very good. Um, And she... Like there are just these genuinely tense and scary sections where she's writing about what her reporting in Iran was like during the uprisings in Tehran in 2009 um, and just everything that was happening to her as a journalist. It was so like, I mean, you know, she survives because she writes the book, but it was just very tense and really well done. So I think it's a really excellent, it's a a good page turning read, um, but also like a good solid execution and then explanation of a country that's really complicated. Um, So that is The Lonely War, One Woman's Account of the Struggle for Modern Iran by Nazila Fati. So this impressed you like as a journalist with her journalisticness? Yes, it did. I thought it was really, that was really well done. It sounds super, super good. So the Iranian revolution in 1979, that's Persepolis, right? Yes, I believe so. Okay. Because I read that. I have not read this, but this sounds amazing. Okay. <laughs> Did you appreciate my commentary on your book? <laughs> um, my last pick uh, for this episode is Banana Neras, which I mostly picked because I wanted to say the title out loud. Uh, it is Women Transform- Transforming the Banana Unions of Latin America by Dana Frank. It's published by Haymarket Books, which I always love. Their books are almost always on sale because they're a nonprofit. Um, who just want people to learn. Um, So women banana workers have organized themselves and gained increasing control over their unions, their workplaces, and their lives. So in this, Banana Neris recounts the history and growth of this vital movement and shows how Latin American women workers are shaping and broadly reimagining the possibilities of international labor solidarity, which is awesome the cover is like cartoonish almost it's like this bright yellow and super cool um so she talks about uh like honduras and then just kind of like goes down through latin america and talks about um like uh this worker named selva sandoval um a guatemalan fruit worker who uh she calls a laughing energetic tough cookie um which i so it's like you know she doesn't it's like an academic book sort of but also not um and it's very sort of like chatty in its ways and uh i just i don't know i think that women working with like banana unions sounds like an amazing story so my last thing for international women's day banana neris women transforming the banana unions of latin america by dana frank that sounds excellent and yeah that is a great title and i am glad you picked it because it sounds really fun to say (laughs) That's a good one. Um, awesome. That was so fun because I just love that like we didn't really we didn't really coordinate at all, but that we just picked such different books. Like they're sort of all over the place. There's Europe and Africa and Pakistan and Tibet and Iran and Han- yeah, just really good. I'm I'm very impressed with us and the variety of titles we were able to choose. As you should be. Good job, Alice. <laughs> 
All right. And so we will finally close this week's episode as we usually do by talking about the books that we are reading right now at this very moment. Um, And the book that I am reading right now is called This Is Where You Belong, The Art and Science of Loving the Place You Live by Melody Warnick. Uh, And this is a book about how many Americans uh, move a lot. I think the statistic they say in the beginning is that the average American now moves 11.7 times in their lifetime. Um, And so it's a book looking at like, how people move and what you can do to try to feel at home and feel a connection with the place that you live, even if it is not a place that you have lived for a long time. And so Warnick, um, her family has moved a bunch of different places and the book opens with them moving to Virginia. Um, And she at first really doesn't like the town in Virginia that they live, but then decides that she wants to try and make the best of this place because they are hoping to stay there and hoping to make it feel like home for as long as they are going to be there. So um, she looks to science and lots of different research about community and tries to come up with a series of experiments to conduct to see how they affect her sense of place as she lives. Um, And it reminds me a lot of The Happiness Project, which is another book where somebody decides they want to improve their life. And so they come up with a bunch of small experiments to do. Um, And actually Gretchen Rubin blurbed the front of the books or blurbed the book. So it's not like a particularly uh, insightful comment to say that it reminds me of the happiness project, but um, it's really fun so far. And I I really, (laughs) I do like the idea of um, finding joy and meaning and connection to communities. That's part of what I've always done with my jobs and the stuff that I do. So I think that that's resonating with me in some big ways. Um, And yeah, I just think it's really interesting and fun so far. So that is, this is where you belong, the art and science of loving the place you live by Melody Warnick. I think since I was born, I've lived in six places. Do you know how many you've lived in? Uh, we moved to one, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, six. Um, okay, so we've got like 5.5. Yeah, we moved <laughs> left to go. Yeah, we moved once when I was a kid, and then I lived in the same house when I was growing up, and then I moved for college, and then I moved for grad school, and then I moved after grad school, and then moved back. So. I guess I've only lived in three different places, but I've moved six times. Uh, oh, I didn't count my college apartment. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Okay. So what I am <laughs> reading now is – okay, I don't love this title, but I really like the cover. So it is Hot Protestants, A History of Puritanism in England and America by Michael P. Winship. It's published by Yale University Press. And it's talking about, it's like the first, I think, transatlantic history of the Puritans, you know, talking about them both in England and in America. Mm -hmm. Usually there's kind of like a little bit about like how they came over, but um, I think this digs more into their background. I've gotten really into colonial America history, and it's not a good time period for us, but... Um, I'm interested in kind of how our systems got put into place and not so much with like our founding fathers because they're everyone knows about them. It's fine. Um, but kind of like before that and Puritans are definitely a big part of um, our kind of American mentality. And like, you know, that's why we have like, mm-hmm. what is it? Is it wait, is it? Pu- I was going to say Puritan work ethic, but I think it's Protestant work ethic. But whatever. Puritans were Protestants. Yeah, that's fine. So, OK, again, that is. Hot Protestants, A History of Puritanism in England and America by Michael P. Winship. Man, Puritans are so, they're just so bananas. They like, they're so weird. I'm so interested to hear what you think of this book because they just, everything that they thought affects how we think today in like some really significant and weird ways. Yeah, bananas, but not banana naris. <laughs> Got it in one more time. Okay, so with that... <laughs> 
You can find us on social media uh, with all the grace and charm that we bring to this podcast. On Twitter, I am at It's Alice Time. Kim is at Kim the Dork. Uh, and if you feel so inclined, you can find the show on iTunes and you can leave a rating or a review. Um, doing that helps people find us more easily. And then while you're there, you can subscribe so that you can get new episodes the very minute that they come out. Um, so with that, I am Kim Ugra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast.